Hello. Welcome to episode 10 of the Sharpest Knives podcast. This episode is with Hanako O'Leary. But first, before I get into introducing the episode, I want to mark this occasion because it is the last of season one. And it represents the culmination of a lot of work, a full year of work. Uh, I recorded the first episode of Sharpest Knives with Dustin Addington in October of last year. So, yeah. And it looks like we made it. We did it. <laughs> uh, first, I want to thank you all for listening and following me as I bump along here. And I want to thank all of my guests, especially the ones who had never met me in person, like Sarah Porkalob, Bailey Engberg, and Hanako. Thanks for trusting me not to waste your time. <laughs> uh, thank you to my husband, Ryan, for being a sounding board, helping me name the project, testing microphones, etc., and listening to every episode. And thank you to the Seattle Office of Arts and Culture for awarding me a Smart Ventures grant to get this project started. I hope you all in, are enjoying season one. And in case you don't listen to the end of each episode, did you know that Sharpest Knives Podcast has a Patreon page? It does. We do. I do. Uh, it's patreon.com slash sharpest knives podcast. You can make a one-time donation, a monthly donation, or a donation each time a new episode is released. So check that out. Your, your dollars go to equipment upkeep, internet things like, um, like web hosting for my website, and podcast hosting and distribution, and paying me and my guests for our time. Also... If you have questions, if you have questions that you would like me to ask future guests in season two, if you have suggestions for future guests in season two, including yourself, if you just want to give shower me in compliments via email, please email me and Sharpest Knives Podcast. Um, we're Sharpest Knives Podcast at gmail.com. Okay, I got all of my announcement corner out of the way. And I have a few ways for you to see Hanako's work in the coming year. The first half of Hanako's work from her Izanami project will be on display at Edmonds College in February. And there's a, an opening reception on February 21st, 2020 for that. Um, and coming up, Hanako will have some of the masks from her 1200 Spirits collection on exhibit and available for purchase at Pottery Northwest for Northwest Clay Fest, um, and that opens December 13th. They have a little party on December 13th, and it runs until the 20th. Last, if folks want to keep up with what Hanako is up to, uh, make sure to follow her on Instagram at Girl. That's H-A-N-N-Y-A-G-R-R-R-L. She posts a lot of in-process photos and video while she works, and it's pretty cool. Um, okay, I lied. There's one more announcement, corner announcement, and that in is that in this episode, there's a siren around minute 35. We were recording in um, a studio that was not perfectly soundproof, and um, when the ambulance went by, we were at an important part of our conversation, so I didn't want to pause and get us off track. So, sorry, I know it's annoying. Episode 10 with Hanako O'Leary. We talk about how her 
institutional and real-world arts educations work together. And her inspiration for her current project, that's called Izanami, including Hanako's additions to the story of the Shinto queen of the underworld, Izanami, letting go and making space for new knowledge, and how her processes are rooted in gratitude and community. Enjoy! Enjoy season finale! Season 1 Sharpest Knives podcast finale. Let's go. All right, welcome to Sharpest Knives. My name is Maris, and I'm here with Hanako O'Leary today. Hanako was born and raised by her Japanese mother and American father. She grew up roaming the suburbs of Chicago. Every year for two months during the summer holiday, her mother would take her and her siblings back to their ancestral home in Hiroshima, Japan. Those summers were spent learning how to cook, clean, and honor her ancestors from her four aunts, Nagako, Nobuko, (laughs) Atsuko, and Masako. Hanako attended this annual pilgrimage until the year she turned 18, and these summer months would deeply influence her spiritual beliefs, artistic voice, and feminine ideals. Spending most of her life on American soil, but always under a Japanese matriarchy, Hanako learned to bridge these identities through art, employing traditional Japanese imagery to narrate her current American story. Hanako has received an extensive arts education within institutional walls and beyond. She exists through her hands. Thus, she has has had many a love affair with a range of tactile artistic mediums. She is currently building her ceramic series Izanami as a long-term resident artist at Pottery Northwest, and she works for Shumpike as a program coordinator for their storefronts project. Hanako, welcome to my show. <laughs> Hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> my first question for you is, what's left out of your professional bio that is is important to you or important to the work that you do? Um... I mean, that's the, the gist of it. I think if I were to get more into the nitty gritty of it, I mean, you know, I have a BFA in ceramics and then, you know, an MFA in arts administration. Um, and I use the two together in order to not only create art, but also, I guess, manage, coordinate and administrate art. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also feel like, I don't know, with professional bios... I feel like you're supposed to like list all your accomplishments and it's kind of like a short resume, but that always kind of, I don't know. I think unless you're like a super impressive person, it gets <laughs> kind of bland. So I don't really. Yeah. Otherwise it's just a bullet list of, yeah, what you've of like done. all the cool stuff you've done. Yeah. I found, especially in talking to artists, they're like, there's no, like, it doesn't feel appropriate to yeah. include all of that stuff. Like when you're talking about your, like that bio is pulled specifically from like your website where you mm-hmm. showcase your personal works. Yeah. So then bragging about your, not bragging, but listing, listing your BFA, right, your MFA. Right. And it's also like the things that I talk about are the things that actually define me. Um, and the yeah. degrees that I've earned or whatever is just, I think things that I felt would get me from point A to point B, but they don't, they aren't like the fundamental core of who I am and why I do what I do. Right. Yeah. I really like the part in your bio where you, where you say you have an extensive arts education with institutions within institutional walls and beyond. I think that right. sums it up. Yeah. <laughs> most eloquent way. That's I've all you heard. need to know. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, that's great. 
Can you talk a little bit about the connections between your work as an arts administrator Mm -hmm. um, in your position at Shunpike and your personal work? Yeah, so um, Shunpike, which is basically my day job, um, uh, for that is a nonprofit. It's a small arts nonprofit. Um, They kind of wear a lot of hats, but the the specific part I'm involved in is their Storefront Seattle program, um, where they basically work with uh, neighborhoods, real estate companies, corporations, um, any place that owns or manages a property um, and and has a spot that's been vacant for a while, we help them fill it with art um, while it's waiting for a more permanent use. Mm -hmm. And so um, right now our program mainly rotates around um, South Lake Union in the Amazon campus. There are eight uh, like kind of spaces that we use to regularly rotate artwork and then two at the Maven Bower Center in Bellevue. Oh, cool. Uh, Yeah, and um, every year there'll be like one or two extra locations that pop up but it's more temporary like it'll be like one six-month installation or you know um so it's not a regular they're not like a regular partner on our roster got it yeah but so my job essentially is just to um find the artist well you know put out the call manage the panel um get a roster set up and then get the artists in and out <laughs> of of their uh, or their at least their artwork in and out of yeah. these spaces. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's a lot. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, it sounds like a lot, but yeah. yeah. How long is a se- like? How long does each artist have their artwork displayed? So it depends. Um, in South Lake or at Amazon, they have it up for three to four months. So there's three rotations, um, eight artists in each rotation. Mm-hmm. And their work, it's, it kind of just depends on the time of year and, like, specific schedules of things. But it's usually between three and four months their work is up. And then yes. over at the Maidenbauer Center, um, we have two windows with two, two rotations of artists. So um, up, their work is up for six months. Oh, awesome. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. It is fun to walk around Seattle and be like, oh, what's this? Oh, art. <laughs> and not just public art, but like fully like lit and displayed right. and installed art is really cool. Yeah. And I also think um, the fact that they're so temporary is also, to me, really nice because sometimes you just get so used to something being part of your visual field that it just mm-hmm. disappears. Um, yeah. Whereas with this, uh, there's been... You know, certain installations where people are like, oh, I still remember that one and I miss it or, you know. Oh, that's like, cute. Yeah. That's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the opposite. And so, like, it's nice because um, also because it's so temporary, even if something is a little bit uh, experimental or risque, um, it kind of people will will allow it i guess because they know that it's not going to be up forever so it kind of mm. allows us as an organization and artists to um push boundaries a little bit you know yeah which is a lot more than say like working with the city or right. directly with a corporation with a permanent piece where it has to go through so many right so many people before it's finally approved yeah and that's also exciting for artists who maybe wouldn't get um 
exhibition opportunities because their art's risque, but get it because of that temporary space. Right. It like could be like a way to open the door for them to get more opportunities to exhibit their work. Yeah, yeah. That and also um, for emerging artists mm-hmm. whose portfolios may not be as um, uh, developed as um, some other folks who are applying for the same thing. Um, with this, because we accept 30 artists a year, uh, your your chances of, of getting into the pool are a lot higher. So even if you're yeah. a little bit new to um, showing your work at a professional level, um, it's a it's an easier door to access, I guess, and yeah. it also helps you build up. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, how did you start when you started at Sean Pike? Did you start in this position? Um, yeah, I did actually. Oh, cool. Yeah, <laughs> or or I started as an artist. I mm-hmm. um, I did an installation for the program, and then while my artwork was up, the person who has my job now, the coordinator, just emailed us, being like, "Oh, by the way, I'm leaving this position, so you should think about applying." Oh. Um, and it worked out. That's awesome. Yeah. So it is, I mean, it's cool that it's a net, it's a way to get artists into a network like Sean Pike. Yeah. Or like finding day jobs as administrators to, exactly. support, their, exactly. <laughs> to support their art making. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you been able to use or, um, any, sorry, have you like kept in touch with any artists who have been a part of storefronts? And yes. Like, um, there are definitely some artists that I've become friends with through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still keep in touch with them, um, and, and, you know, keep up with their work. Um, I'm trying to remember if I've like directly collaborated with anybody yet since then, but I think I, I feel like, um, there's been times where I've through this program been rec- recommended by artists who've been through it, um, yeah. for different shows or I've done, you know, the same for them. Yeah. So it's been, yeah, really awesome in that regard in terms of just, um, expanding my own network. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it is like truly community building. Mm-hmm. Definitely. With, yeah. Yeah. Because there'll be some people whose work I'm like, Oh, this is really interesting. Like, tell me about it, you know, because they're, yeah. I'm literally just standing around watching them install their artwork or it'll be like, right. let me give you a hand. Like, right. Tell me about your work. Um, and then things get rolling from there. Yeah. That's yeah. so fun. I like, I like that combination of, uh, like desk work, like a true administrative work. Mm-hmm. And then also you get to help them. Yeah. Set it's up it's definitely, down. it's equal amounts, um, desk, desk work and, just be like running around from window to window asking people if they need me to like let them know if something's level or just like hold something in place or yeah yeah that sounds really fun it's it's a pretty great job <laughs> yeah yeah and i mean it sounds like it's fun to meet people who are also working artists oh yeah definitely um and i think the thing i love the most about it and the thing that feeds my own practice the most about this this job is I see artists from all walks of life. So like I was saying, like there'll be, you know, su- artists who are still like very much emerging. Like this might be the first like big gig or whatever you want to call it yeah. for them. Um, and, and then anywhere to an artist who's been like, who's an established public artist and has been working for decades even. Yeah. Um, and then everything in between that and people who make art full time, people who are, um, you know, 
like stay at home parents, but also have a very rich studio practice. Um, and then people like me who kind of do all kinds of things Mm -hmm. (laughs) and make it work. And so, um, you get to see like all these different ways to be an artist, which is, um, for me, it's, you know, there are times where it like feels really hard, you Mm -hmm. know, to be out there and try to create and sustain yourself. And then with a job like this, you kind of get to see all these other people out there doing it and making it work. Yeah. And so it can be very encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Especially, I mean, I totally relate to you saying like, oh, I'm just like a person doing the hustle, like, like cobbling together all these things to support my creative practice. And I feel like a lot of people I know or I interact with personally are doing the same. Mm -hmm. And so I can see that like talking to people who have different experiences, like balancing their creative lives in different ways, like that's encouraging and inspiring. And Mm -hmm. you're like, oh, we all are doing different stuff in different ways, yeah. but we're all like working towards the same thing. Essentially. Yeah, exactly. And, and even when it's not inspiring because some days, you know, you might be in a bad place or they might be in a bad place, but you still have to like get work done right. just like any other work environment. And it kind of sucks. Yeah. Um, you still see that like the hardships that a creative person faces is like, universal, Mm -hmm. you know, like even if you're like this, like big shot artist, um, you're still having a bad day, uh, because of, you know, like a creative block or you're feeling like your career isn't doing what it needs to do or whatever. Right. And I've totally know what that's like. And so you kind of, there's like this feeling of solidarity. Yeah. As a creative person. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I like that. That's encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It takes a few days to like find that positive spin sometimes. Oh yes. No, I feel that. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, it's positive. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, well let's move into talking a little bit about your personal work Mm -hmm. as an artist. Um, so most recently you participated in the pop-up exhibition in the Othello neighborhood called assembly, Mm -hmm. um, with your project building Yomi um, reforming our structural memory. And so that's connected with your Izanami series. Mm -hmm. Um, and with that, it was an exhibition that was an installation in an empty apartment and then you hosted two workshops. Yeah. Okay, great. I didn't get to go. I was really mad. I was out of town. (laughs) So, um, I'm just going to read like two sentences from your artist statement from Mm -hmm. that workshop. Um, The workshops had the intention to collect impressions and memory of the feminine, which influence the community and holds your clay. Mm -hmm. Um, I will use this earth to build a portal to explore this realm of life and death and feminine power in Method Gallery in September 2020. So if you could talk a little bit about this whole project. Um, Yeah, so... um... Let's see. So for a little bit over a year now, I've been working on this series um, that I've been calling Izanami. And it's it's a series of work. um, And it's named after the Shinto goddess of death and creation. Um, And the story behind her is that um, her and her lover were the first two beings in existence. And they created the uh, the islands of Japan together. 
And because they were lonely, they decided to uh, create a family in the very traditional way that we're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And um, so Izanami gave birth to all these gods and goddesses until, uh, and everything was great until one day she became pregnant with the god of fire. And when it came time to give birth to that, to that being, um, it was too much for her mortal body, the, the process of birthing fire. And so um, while the baby survived, she perished from the, from the labor so process. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, her soul was taken to the underworld. Uh, and this was the first death that Japan had ever experienced. And so it's this story about her lover who decides, like, he's not okay with this, so he needs to go down and save her. Um, but ultimately, like, in many stories where a man tries to pull his love out of the underworld, he fails. <laughs> and then very quickly he decides, well, I tried, but I guess it didn't work. <laughs> and then he goes off and enjoys, you know, a lifetime full of adventures and is crowned a hero. Um, well, her story just ends. At that point, it's like, wah, wah, sorry. <laughs> oh, no. And then, and then, yeah, and then in the lore, it's like, and that's why she's the queen of the underworld, but we're not going to talk about her anymore. And her story's <laughs> over. And yeah. so um, I, always, I just, it really struck me because I was like, well, why is she's the queen of the underworld? That's like a pretty important position. <laughs> the underworld's like a pretty big place, and it's a very, um, I don't know, important destination to mortals, which is like all of us telling the story. Right. And so you'd think there'd be a little bit more like information about that besides for just like, oh, she's there and yeah. she's the queen. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, basically it's just like, well, now that the man's left, like there's no <laughs> more story to tell. Right. And so um, I really related to it because um, at the time when I first come across the story, I had just gotten an abortion. And so I was really contemplating like what it means to have this body that can create life and also the importance of having the choice to not create life when it's there to mm -hmm. essentially, you know, and I don't think that like life starts at conception, but essentially like metaphorically, it's like you're denying life. Mm -hmm. Um and so I was just thinking of that and my body as a vessel and like, you know, this connection as um, an extension of the earth that can create, basically, and um, how on so many levels, people who don't have that ability still want to be able to control it. And so like in this story, there is this, um, you know, figure who doesn't have the ability to create and doesn't have this, doesn't possess this realm um, of life and death, but he still um, insists on going down into it and trying to exert his will and have his way. Mm -hmm. And when he finds out that he can't, um, he diminishes it and dismisses it as an unimportant place. And so um, the people who tell these stories and tales and perpetuate the myth of where we came from and why the, we are the way we are um, is told from people with a very specific perspective. And so I thought, yeah. okay, I should probably tell it from my perspective. Um, and I think this, you know, Izanami is a, is a heroine and she must have so many adventures to tell and mm -hmm. I want to know what they are. So I'm just going to go ahead and tell them. Yeah. And so that started this series of, um, 12, 
uh, ceramic vessels that each represent like a certain realm of the underworld mm -hmm. that um, this, this uh, figure or Izanami goes through to, um, I don't want to use the word conquer, but maybe like master mm -hmm. or like realize. Yeah. Um, and then also a series of 12 masks that I call battle masks. So they're kind of her like um, gear that she puts on as she like goes through <laughs> to, um, I guess, understand and, and become one with this like section of, I want to say herself because I relate it to me and I identify as a she, but you know, yeah. themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, yeah. And then, I so, yeah. so I, and to finish off like why I had this event at assembly. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in September of 2020, I'm going to be showing this work at King street station. Um, and at the same time, I also, um, got accepted to show work at Method Gallery, which is a strictly like installation art only oh, okay. space. Um, and so I wanted, I thought it'd be cool to like present that as kind of the, um, I guess like, like the sculptural and like, you know, like craft object version of the story. And then I also wanted to create this space where, um, we could all freely roam in and out of this like underworld space, like as yeah. we want to. Um, and so at Method, I'm going to be creating this like portal type space. Uh, and I don't know what it's going to look like yet or how I'm going to do it. I just know that I want clay to be a big part of it. Mm -hmm. And um, I also think a lot about like there's all within clay, there's all this like clay lingo. And one of them mm -hmm. is that. Clay has structural memory. And so okay. that means that um, because of, you know, like the, the certain ways, like the molecules and clay are bound together. Mm -hmm. It's like if you build something, like if you build a shape in clay and let it sit for long enough, it's going to just remember that shape and want to kind of settle back into that shape. So you mm -hmm. can like try to, you know, build more stuff onto it or kind of like whack it into a different um position or shape, yeah. but, um, unless you, you do it with a lot of expertise, it's still just going to slump back into the original form that you let it set in. Oh, okay. And so I kind of relate that to this idea of folktales, mythology, religion, even, um, the ways in which we create narratives that, uh, build structure around how we see ourselves and how we see others. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it takes, like a whole community and a whole culture and generations to undo certain structures. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's kind of like a way for us to metaphorically like sit and really think about that and, you know, rebuild um, ourselves and the world around us in the way we would like to see it. And so yeah. that's why I invited, um, you know, my community, like the, the people I know and people Ellen knows, uh, to come together and, um, and just like work, like physically work with the clay that I'm planning on using to build this space. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I want to have, so I had two workshops, um, during that, uh, collaboration. And then I'm hoping to have maybe like two or three more, 
cool. before I go into actually build this space. Um, and also, I don't know, I'm just trying to um, find as many ways in, to like have other people's hands in my work yeah. <laughs> for this part of, of, of this series or the concept, I guess, of, of this whole body of work because um, working in ceramics, it's like, and also I think a lot of craft mediums can be really isolating. Mm -hmm. Like you sit and you just like, you know, it's just like you and your hands and this material for like hours right. for like months right. or years even. Right. Um, but, you know, if you like kind of step back and look at craft as like a whole whole like realm of creating, it's also all about like passing down knowledge mm -hmm. and like building upon like this skill set in order to like make a certain material do something that no one knew how to like manipulate it before. Right. And so it's all about being able to like pass on knowledge and there's like this huge social element to it that I think always gets kind of diminished because mm -hmm. like, people are so focused on the final product. Right. And so, um, I've just been thinking about ways in which to emphasize that aspect yeah. of it just as much yeah. as what something looks like at the end. Right. Yeah. And uh, I can imagine that, especially when you're like anticipating September and mm -hmm. you're like, I have this huge end point. Yeah. But like, I love that you're val placing so much value on the process mm -hmm. and um, so much thought into how you're like what into how you're working. Right. Um, yeah. Can you can you describe um, like what you did in your workshop? Because mm -hmm. I don't want people to think it was just like people making stuff out of clay. And then you squished it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I did was I made these two large like bowl shapes mm -hmm. and then people were invited to like sit and they could, you know, like scratch stuff into the, what's already there or they can build stuff on top of it or they could just like wipe out what was there before and just make it another clean slate. Mm -hmm. Um, so kind of, honestly, it kind of was people were just invited to like, <laughs> you know, squish around clay, but it yeah. was in this kind of, um, there was this like container that was already set before them to like add onto or even destroy if they wanted to. Yeah. And did you have a prompt out like questions or prompts outside of like the just bigger theme of your exhibition? No, so um, the way it was set up was, uh, so the whole space is this, like, one-bedroom apartment, and yeah. um, I guess it had, like, you know, the living room slash kitchen area, and then it had, like, a study and a bedroom, but each room had its own installation mm -hmm. in it, um, and even with some of my sculptures, uh, some of them I have kind of participatory elements to them, like... Um, I, so like each, like I was saying, like each of the 12 vessels, like might represent like a certain aspect of, of, I don't know, like self actualization or mm -hmm. whatever, or like realizing y how you, um, realizing your role in society or kind of like mastering that. Yeah. And so like I had created one, um, 
one vessel that I nicknamed the butt jar, because, <laughs> which actually is like, that's, that's just like my own name, like pet name for it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, it was a, it was a vessel that was like, um, dedicated to matriarchy. And so it had like all of, it has all these tiers of what seems like, um, kind of like very feminine, like, you know, uh, um, kind of like Venus-like figurines just mm-hmm. kind of holding each other up. And like the idea of it was that um, like we all come from uh, a, you know, female body mm-hmm. and um, like whether it be through that person or, or somebody else, like we kind of learn, um, learn lessons from them. Yeah. And, um, and, and then we go on to pass that knowledge on to other people. And so, um, in that process, there's, there's a part where you have to, um, kind of acknowledge what you learned and find gratitude in it, but also find space to, um, to, I guess, not like forget, but I guess, um, to acknowledge that certain lessons that you learn or that are passed on to you aren't as useful anymore. Mm-hmm. And so you need to let them go and make space for new knowledge that would be more useful to the next generation. Right. And so like in that room, I had that, that sculpture and I was asking people to just write notes, um, of gratitude and commitment of like what they learned and what they appreciate and the things that they're going to make sure to pass on to the next generation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, so I'm with that piece, I'm like collecting all these people's notes um, that they, they put inside the vessel. Oh, okay. And um, when it comes time to fire it, I'm just going to fire that piece all at once with all the paper inside so that um, this goes back into like ceramic stuff. But um, when, when you fire uh, ceramics to like all the, Clay is supposed to be fired to like a certain temperature to be it's like kind of happiest, strongest form. Mm-hmm. And um, usually that heat is hot enough to kind of just like totally evaporate most fibers and paper and yeah. stuff like that. And so um, in that process, um, kind of like the words and any of any like moisture, or like ink or anything in there kind of just gets evaporated into the, the air and into yeah. the clay. And so it's kind of this idea that these intentions are going to be like ingrained into yeah. this vessel. I love it. Thanks. It, so yeah. So like, it's each, like an room, ex, each, like each process or like each vessel is its own ritual. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And each, I love that each step in like the process of building the clay you're making into like a weighted, like thoughtful ritual mm-hmm. in itself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, because again, like I want to share this idea of, you know, when you're, or when I'm sitting and making these things, it'll just be like so many hours of just me and myself and my thoughts. Right. Um, (laughs) and it's kind of, which can be sometimes like a beautiful thing or like the fact that I can sit there and make these things helps me put those thoughts away. Mm -hmm. Like at the best, like in the best of times, like I'll be sitting there working so long that I don't have to think, think anymore. Right. (laughs) Um, and so it's kind of like being able to share that process with somebody of just like sitting with an object that has a certain meaning 
mm-hmm. and like meditating on it and hopefully like not having, by the time you leave, not having to think about it right. as much. Yeah. <laughs> as much. Yeah. 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 I love it. Um, and I do, um, Ellen and I talked about a little bit about this on a, on our episode of the podcast, but like the like meditative qualities of working with your hands or like mm-hmm. physically doing something mm-hmm. or, um, yeah. And like, how does that, because Ellen's so interested in like artist rituals. Mm-hmm. So like, how is that ritual actually a huge part of the work? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also, in talking about like the papers that you're putting in the jars, mm-hmm. I love how, especially in that example you gave, it's positive. Mm-hmm. You're not saying like, list all the bad stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you're saying list something that was helpful to you and something you like want to keep yeah. for the future. Yeah. And I really like, especially when we're talking about like, disrupting like patriarchal systems Mm -hmm. or like institutionalized racism and things like that. Like, Oh, it's very easy to get bogged down in all like the negative systemic BS. Mm -hmm. And so to have a, a process rooted in like gratitude and positivity that is like made to dismantle those structures is really refreshing and um also healing i'm sure <laughs> yeah i mean i think it's really easy to get bogged down into everything that's wrong with the structures around you mm-hmm. um and i definitely like feel that way you know every day i think everyone does yeah. or at least people who take the time to really look around <laughs> them right um and it's easy to also like for me, you know, like I can easily get in a place where I, f- I, I feel like really self-critical, mm-hmm. especially also when you work in craft, there's like certain things that you're taught are right and other things that are wrong. And like, this looks good and this doesn't, um, which can be like really limiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I think, you know, if you get too stuck in seeing things in the black and white like that. Um, and also just assuming that if it's not like perfect, then it's all garbage. Right. (laughs) Uh, you're not going to get anywhere, you know? Yeah. And also it's just too depressing. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) It is. So, and also it's like not true. Cause I think that even if we do live right now and probably forever in like a terribly broken society it's like the intention wasn't to build a broken thing it was like right to build something that works and we're still figuring out how to do it and so you have to like honor that aspect of like the effort that went into it wasn't all you know based in like hatred and oppression Mm -hmm. like you know like my mom might have taught me something that wasn't very beneficial to my mental health, but it wasn't because she hated me. It was just because she thought that would be helpful for me. Right. And as an adult, I get to say, actually, it's not. Right. But I'm not going to write that one down. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've come up with my own ideas of like, what are better ways to like, look at this situation. Yeah. Yeah. And that ties in too, to that line in your bio, when you talk about your arts education, both like institutional and independent and yeah both in and out because um from like 
being a person who has a formal art education Mm -hmm. there, I have definitely felt like, oh, now it's like critique day. So it's like, this is good. This is bad. Right. And then in your own practice as an adult outside of school, like something that they didn't teach me in art school was that actually the biggest part of your process is figuring out what your process actually is Mm -hmm. and what works for you Mm -hmm. and what is healthy for you to do and not like this line needs to be this way, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 Or even just like, you know, the way you explain that didn't make sense and didn't sound smart. So this piece doesn't mean anything. (laughs) Right. So therefore all meaning is now lost. Yeah. Yeah. You, all the work you did doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I, I also say that only because, um, I think I'm always like going back and forth on whether art school is like worth or is, is helpful or harmful. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's so many ways in which it's harmful, Mm -hmm. like big ways that like impact you kind of forever. Yeah. (laughs) And, and there's so many lessons just like out and like, if you only went to art school and then just like lived in your studio for the rest of your life, I'm pretty sure your art would be like so uninteresting. You know, like, I think it's like everything in the world around you that you go out and encounter that makes someone's art, like, worth even engaging in or, like, relatable Mm -hmm. or interesting. And so, and those things aren't available, like, in your college lecture room. Not really. No. I mean... And, and how many dollars are you paying to do that? And <laughs> right. like, who's telling you you're good or bad at anything in those spaces? So it's just like, yeah, I mean, I went through it and I got some stuff out of it. I got some training out of it, but it's not enough to merit any more than just that line. Right. In my bio. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's why you don't include it. Yeah, well, you know, I, I give it a nod. I yeah, like, yeah, you were there. Thanks. That Thanks. was some cool years. Yeah, and then there's also like these so many other years of my life, right? That have made me who I am. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about arts education, we we both did the MFA program at Seattle U for arts leadership, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering, um, as like. As a person who is an artist working in like tactile, like painting and ceramics, Mm -hmm. what made you want to go back to school and get like a, add another facet to your arts education? Um, so originally when I went back, uh, for that, it was because, um, so I had gotten a BFA in ceramics, and then um, I moved out to Seattle right afterwards. So I, I went to school in Illinois, and um, I was kind of out away from my family, like totally living on my own for the first time ever. And I mean, at the time, I was also really burnt out with just like studio work and visual arts and just sitting around and making and only hanging out with other people who just sit around and make stuff. Yeah. Um <laughs> And so I wasn't really feel, I was kind of feeling like dark about all of it. Like what does it even mean? And and feeling like being an artist is kind of like selfish and and unnecessary. (laughs) Um, And so I didn't make art for like a whole year, but I, I still like, couldn't like 
not have anything to do with it. So yeah. um, during that time, I was like, I was uh, interning at um, the Japanese Cultural and Community Center, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is in the International District. But um, they do a lot of work around... Um, around addressing uh, the the internment of Japanese people or the incarceration and in internment camps um, during World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, and they just happened to be doing, having a big ex exhibit um, of all of the um, arts and crafts that were made while people were interned in these camps. And they needed someone to help them with that exhibit. So I got to be an intern for them during that time. And I, and it, it kind of um, showed me like a very real world way in which people like utilize art and creative expression just to like survive. Yeah. You know, like these are pieces of art made out of twigs that are gathered or like shells that people dug up because that's all that there was around them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like they still like found the time and energy amidst like this terrible time in their lives to still yeah. like make these amazing like um sculptures or like functional objects like little drawers and and like little sculptures you know things mm -hmm. that you might not think serves any sort of purpose but actually the purpose that they served in these people's lives were huge and so um and then also, like, now that we still have these objects, like, we are more connected to that time and there's so much we can learn from them. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of um, reconnected me to the idea that actually art is, like, incredibly important and necessary for, like, the survival of humanity. Yeah. And it got me back <laughs> to being like, okay, no, like, I, I need to commit my life to the arts. I don't know if... I want to be like a maker. Like maybe that's something I can just do when I feel like it on the side, but I do need to be involved yeah. in, you know, I need to be putting my efforts into um, sustaining like the arts community in, in general. So that got me back into, and then I started working at this um, uh, mosaic studio where mm -hmm. the woman who was running it um, also went through a lot of grief in her life. She had lost her two daughters in a plane crash. And so oh she was a doctor before that, but that, um, that pro going through the grief, she realized that medicine couldn't, you know, like it couldn't result, like it couldn't, um, it couldn't alleviate her pain, but art, even though she was still terribly sad, at least kind of like was able to reach her sadness. Hmm. And so, um, she, you know, started this business where she just like, uh, it was a membership based program where people could come in and like make mosaic art, but also like, um, the word of mouth aspect of her business though, it was also a place where people who were experiencing grief could come and make, um, uh, artwork to commemorate their, their loss or their loved ones who are now gone. And so again, there, I saw this like way in which art plays like a huge role in alleviating people's pain. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that, after that, after working there for two years, that inspired me to go into arts administration so that I could like 
run spaces or manage programs yeah. like that, that yeah. used art as a tool to like help people. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Those are two very intense experiences. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Now when I'm thinking back on it, I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I but, learned so much during that time. And yeah. that, those were times too where I stopped making my own art, um, which felt really dark to me actually because I wasn't creating anything and I felt really lost. But then yeah. the, the seeing those um, spaces and being able to you know have a small part in them was also like incredibly, um, uh, I don't know, I guess like educational, that's a weird word, but like I learned a lot there. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, it sounds like what you learned, partially what you learned was that art doesn't only have to be mean you make art now. Mm -hmm. You can be involved in other ways. Yeah. And also art isn't, like art school where it's like you make art now in this room alone. Right. And isn't it so clever that you found a way to talk about that issue with that piece of stuff that you made. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Or like, don't you sound so smart? Yes. Which was a lot of what art school was to me was like, yeah, you you know, (laughs) I had some cool professors, but they were all older white dudes. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like I felt like, you like earned your little pat on the back if you use the biggest words and like referenced this philosopher and that contemporary artist. Yeah. And I was like, what is the point? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that happens more often than it should in higher education. Yeah. I like to think that things are different now. I mean, I went through undergrad uh, from... 2000, I think 2006 to 2010. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's been like 10 years since then. Yeah. So hopefully it's different conversations are happening. I hope so too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it, yeah, it totally makes sense also with your, like, why your art making now includes other people mm-hmm. so much because... Because you realize, like, oh, my community is valuable yeah. to my art making. Yeah. And it can't just be, even though, like, a, some of the making is you and your hands in the clay, mm-hmm. I I just really like that you're trying to, you're, like, trying to redefine what it is for yourself to be an art maker. Yeah, or or, and also just, like, how through making art, I am actually like a very active member of society because that's the other thing that you get like beaten over the head with too, is like, as an artist, like you're selfish and self-involved and (laughs) like, unless you somehow like strike gold and become this like famous icon, you're also a bum. Right. And it's like, that's not true. Um, and even if you are like, well, and also it's like, who isn't selfish and self-absorbed in today's world? You know, how is like working for Amazon less selfish than spending all your time? Like, I don't know, painting hyper-realistic chairs. Like (laughs) what's, which one of those things are more selfish or even just like having children, you know, like they're all in ways, like things that you choose to do because like, that's what you need to thrive. 
Yeah. You know, and art, making art is one of those things. Yeah. Um, and also, I think um, it's incredibly important to have these artists, like, tell, like, intense personal narratives or show us their own incredibly unique vision of the world around them. Mm-hmm. Um, because it gives us all something that we can connect and relate to or it can illuminate us to something that we aren't able to see without them. Yeah. And so, yeah, I also, like, at some point in that, I had to learn that actually, like, taking time out of my life to just, like, you know, take this pile of clay and make a bunch of pots out of it mm-hmm. with, like, vaginas growing off them is yeah. not selfish, and it's not weird, and I'm not being a bum. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, it speaks to, like, how how art is valued yeah because because like you're saying like oh someone working at amazon objectively or like someone working at like a job where you like go to work nine to five Mm -hmm. whatever that might be um is inherently more valued than being in your studio from nine to five yeah or there's this sense that like that's a proper way of living and spending your time and there's nothing wrong with that and there's nothing about that that should be questioned whereas like you know if someone is spending nine to five in their mom's basement like recording beats (laughs) and like there's something like deeply wrong about that you know it's like there is no i'm just kidding (laughs) it's like well what's the difference yeah yeah absolutely yeah um, well, we're just about at time. So do you have any, anything you'd like to plug? Any, do you have upcoming workshops scheduled right now? Um, okay. So I do have some things to plug. Well, first and most important plug are these two shows that I'm having in September. Yeah. But, um, in February, on February 21st, I'm having kind of like what I like to think of as a preview of this at um, Edmonds Community College, um, where I'll have six of my best 12 vessels and masks completed. And it's also very special because it's my first like official solo show. Mm. So, so exciting. Yeah, 2020 is a big year. I'm going to be having three solo shows. Oh, wow. From having never had any, having any. So, um, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Congratulations. I know. I'm very excited. Yeah. And so uh, please come out to to any or all of them if you can. Um, but yeah, so the Edmonds one opens February 21st, and then the dates are still to be determined for King Street Station and Method Gallery, but it'll be uh, in September. Awesome. Yeah. Amazing. Thanks. Um, any last thoughts? Anything we didn't tie up? Um, any thoughts we didn't complete? Um, no, I think my biggest just thing that I want people to know, mostly just my artist peeps out there is to just keep making your work. And even if you think it's shitty, like someday you'll look back and think, actually, it's not, it's really important. And, um, don't throw out your old work and, uh, don't stop making work either. Perfect. That was a perfect sum up. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for being here. No, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. This is really fun. Great. <laughs>
The Sharpest Knives podcast is created, edited, and produced by me, Maris Antolin, and partially supported by the Seattle Office of Arts and Culture. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash sharpest knives podcast, or find us on Instagram at sharpest knives podcast. And you can follow along and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash sharpest knives podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments and your questions and suggestions for future guests. Email us at sharpestknivespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.